From the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I gave it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring Josh Webb, Jake LaTondras, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line Podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Ducks House Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me from West Point, Mississippi. Oh, y'all himself. Y'all. I gotta ask you this. <laughs> How did the massage go? Because I hadn't talked to you since the massage. Oh, yeah. Uh, man, it's so good. I can't even remember half of it. We, uh, I would say it was pretty good, man. I was a little nervous, you know, but, uh, they said get down to your comfortable level. And, uh, I mean, I ain't put no clothes on you. <laughs> I got up under the covers. <laughs> I felt comfortable. You know, my girl asked me afterwards, she's like, you were naked in there? I was like, well, I mean, I had, you know, I had the sheet on. You know, she's like, you're such an idiot. <laughs> I wanted that. I wanted that good. I wanted it all the way down to the tailbone. That's why I be hurting that on my tailbone all the time. And the feet, the feet be wearing me out, cause. Woo. I'm not gonna ask you why you're hurting in the tailbone so bad. <laughs> can't be a lot. It can't be a good explanation on that. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm a government worker. <laughs> so we be, we be sitting down. <laughs> We were wore out on them hard chairs. Oh man, but yeah, man, we went in that went in that little massage parlor, man. They had that music playing, and uh, you know that good. I don't know what kind of music it is, but anyway, they grabbed my head, man. It just put me in a trance. It was over with. I, I don't even remember much about the rest of it. Uh, when she just made me massage my head, but I, I woke up when they touched them toes. Though, like I said, I'm tickling. <laughs> you know, my girl, my girl took me down there to the uh, to the little hut where they work on your feet. She said, ain't no way I'm going to let you go down there to that massage parlor and let them see them toes you got looking like that. So uh, I said, all right. So I was sitting up in there. I had my little feet bubbling in that hot water with them, with them uh, flowers or whatever they put in it. And I done got kind of soothed and kind of relaxed. And I could feel that old girl taking my legs and picking them up, man. When she hit me on the bottom of them toes with, the, with that scrub, shoot, <laughs> like to straighten out her smile, man. <laughs> like to kick her right in her nose. <laughs> Oh, there were several people in there. They were laughing. They were they were they were laughing because I I couldn't handle it, man. They touching my toes. They clipping them toenails. But uh, I, I think it I think it about caught my girl in the eye when they cut one toenail. So uh, they they pretty rough. But man, I don't see my feet that much, you know. I got a shower. My trailer hood I live in my little trailer. It's like a three and a half by three and a half trailer. So uh, I had to stop the drain up, just pour the soap down in the bottom because I can't bend over that little three and a half by three and a half shower. <laughs> I don't get to watch them much. <laughs> oh. Well, look, coming up in just a minute is part four of The Innovator with Ira McCauley. Um, that's coming up here in just a minute. But, all right, so the massage, the the masseuse. It's not, yeah. Get this right. Was it was it a lady or was it a man? It was a lady. It was a lady. And, uh. I mean, we had. Were you worried ladies. about that? Eh, I was when they said get down to your comfort comfort level. You know, I didn't say, well, I go and get anywhere I'm comfortable because they said if you kept the boxes on, they couldn't get down to the, you know, to that that spot that, that you know that needs to be rubbed. You know, and I, I mean, I'm a tailbone. What I'm talking about, and uh, so I was, you know, I was like, well, I get down, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, my girl in the other room, you know, she can hear and see everything she wanted to. I mean, far as you know, what's going on, but. Yeah, my uh, uh, we made jokes, of course, all weekend about the birthday weekend. But that's what my girl said. She said, "I hope, uh, I hope I got a man after after this massage because the girl he got it is a ten. And I was like, "Oh yeah, you know, <laughs> I don't put no numbers on no girl. I don't even want your number. Just leave me alone." <laughs> 
But I, I will tell you, we went to a place, and, and I say this because I want to give a little shout out. It's called Tranquility by the Sea, and uh, so they did they did a fine job, and uh, we tipped them well. And uh, like I said, I did give I want to give a little shout out because they did. If you're down in Panama City and did a little rub down, uh, get them shoulders loosened up, shoot, go to that Tranquility by the Sea. <laughs> so, what's the proper tip for a masseuse? The twenty percent, ten percent. Yeah, I think. Well, my girl is my birthday present, so she pays. So I just give. I give a tip. I think I give a twenty dollars a piece or twenty five dollars a piece, something like that. You know, I pay the tip. So, uh, you know, I don't know if that's legit or not, but I mean, price was already. You know, I mean, we was in there like an hour, hour and a half, so I mean, it was already kind of steep. But uh, you know, I don't know what what my girl paid, but uh, it was part of my birthday present. But you know, I give twenty five dollars a piece or so, so something like that, maybe twenty. I can't remember, but. I mean, we had a good time, you know, but there's a bunch of laughing going on in there. But like I said, when they grab that head, <laughs> I mean, just put you in a trance, man. Just put you in a trance. You don't want to talk about nothing. Just listen to the music, feel the lotion. Y'all, are you an auto tipper or do you tip based on the service that you get? Uh, I'm about an auto tipper, man, because, you know, I don't ever know. Working for the government, I'm always ill with customers myself. I try not to be, but, you know, some people are just rude. Some people just, you, I mean, some people ain't. I mean, but they're I'm kind of like a 5 and 10 and a $15 tip. You know, I go by that, you know, but it's pretty auto. You know, I give you a $5 tip, and I give you a $10 tip or a $15 tip. And, uh, but, I mean, I ain't ever eating no big meal. So, I mean, I go in there and get a, I sit down at the Waffle House and eat a nine ninety nine. I'm going to give you a $5 tip. You know, and I don't know if that's enough or not enough, but. You know, I don't try to. I try not to judge how I was treated that day because you don't know what those people been through. You don't know what the customer they dealt with before that. And also, I would never profile people or judge people because I live in a trailer hood myself and I got a good job. But you don't know how people live, and when people live hard and they working at like a place like the Waffle House or the Hotel House, and that's not demeaning by no means. I don't mean that by no means demeaning, but I mean. Sometimes it's just rough, you know, and, and, and I look at some people, you know, and I don't try, like I said, I don't try to profile, but when I see a 67-year-old woman having a waitress at that age, you know, you think, man, you know, so I don't, you know, I don't judge their bad their, their bad service or nothing like that. As long as they don't cuss me and bring that, if they keep bringing that sweet tea, that's all I'm really worried about anyway. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if I don't get a fork to eat my... To eat my uh, overlight eggs with, that's fine. Just bring that sweet tea. I'll scoop it up with a straw, man. I'll suck it up with a straw. Oh, <laughs> uh, hey! So you had a nice little surprise when you got back from your birthday vacation, didn't you? Uh, Wait, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You talking about my phone bill? <laughs> we got. Ooh. Listen. So, so I called y'all yesterday. I was like, y'all, you know, we got to record tomorrow, so be prepared. He said, "When? What you want to talk about?" I said, "Well, I don't know what what's been going on." He said, well, "Let me tell you about my phone bill." Holy crap! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I tell you what, these five finna get a good. They finna get a good video or a not so good video. <laughs> Coming to the y'all, y'all face. No, I try. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, man, you're talking about a heart attack, man. You know, I, I pulled a snake out of a beaver hut one time, and I thought that was pretty close to a heart attack I could get. But when I got that cell phone bill, ooh, I liked it. I, I didn't swallow my heart. It just fell out of my gut. So, yeah, we, so, you know, I'm dating this girl from Troy now. And, uh, well, back during when all this went on, uh, turkey season started. So I'm out of state all the time, out of state. My phone bill went up like 50 bucks. And I was like, well, let me go down and see what's up. I was like, well, you don't have an unlimited plan. You have unlimited text and and, and whatnot. And I said, okay. I said, how much did I get that unlimited for? They was like, five more dollars. I was like, really? I just paid 50 extra, and I could have been paying $5. They was like, oh, man, we get fixed up. Ain't no big deal. I said, okay. I said, because I'm on the road a lot now. I use a lot of data on my internet. You know, I got this social media page. And I was like, you might have heard me. Y'all, y'all. They're like, uh, y'all know who? I was like, never mind, man. But I appreciate your support. <laughs> so I just, he's like, but I got you, man. I remember that day. He said, I got you, man. Unlimited, unlimited. I said, yeah, that's what I need. Unlimited, unlimited. That's the way he said it. And I walked out. Ain't had no more problems. So now I started dating this old girl down in Troy. Well, you know, we don't get to see each other, but like max every other weekend on average. So 
talk a lot. Well, I'm also the kind of person now, I pay my bill on time six months out of the year. I wait to see five sees you that text message and says, your service will be disconnected in three days if you don't pay. So that's what I do. I pay, I, and they say, you want to pay the full amount? I do, because I, I pay the late charge, and then I pay the previous the month coming. So I'm only late six months out of the year, but I'm always paying, you know. <laughs> I just, it took me a second. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they only send that message, the message every two months. So, you know. so anyway, I ain't had no problem. <laughs> So we get back from the coast, and we've been talking. We talk, well, I know now we talk 4,000 minutes. So uh, my plan had never been changed. I had just been doing right with not talking, you know, there's other two or three months out of the month. So now we started talking. So I call, I get the text message, says, your bills due, you'll be disconnected in three days or whatever. I said, okay. So I called it, and I usually just say, it'll, it'll, it'll ask you, do you want to pay the full balance or hear your balance? And I'll say, this time I just happened to hit here are my balances. Well, it said late, late due was $268. And I was like, huh? I don't pay $100 a month, period. And then it said total due. It said, I did it today, $1,057. Oh, my gosh. I started talking to the pre-recorded message. <laughs> what you mean? $1,057. I don't pay that a year. <laughs> I was up. It was a pre-recorded. Shoot, man, you talking about six? Now it's now it's eight o'clock, eight ten. So they opened up to nine. So I can't. And I almost paid it. Like I mean, I just like had to pay. It. I almost paid. It. I just hung up on the phone. They said, "Would you like to use card number ending in?" No, man, man, they want to cut my card up. I don't. It says decline. It's a Wendy's. Let alone a thousand dollars on foot. You see, man, whoo! I was cutting up. I call my girl, you know, and uh, cause I call her whether I'm whether I'm fussing or, or whatever, you know, and uh, so anyway, I call her. I said, "Man, I've been talking to you, and it cost me a thousand dollars." She said, "It's gonna be all right, baby." I said, "No, I've been talking love straight up my bank account." She said, "Look at him. I ain't the only one you talk to, fool. You better calm down." Oh, she be cutting up on me, man. She come here. She said, "Me straight up, minute." She said, "You better calm your tail down." So anyway, which way? So I go back to the. To the sea spy. I go up there and I said, I walked in the door at like 19. I walked in there, there's three people wanting to help me. You know, they all got to run up there like they want to say something real quick. I walked in and oh, I said, yeah. Who wants to, yeah, I said, Who wants to be a hero today? You know, they all turn around and walk away. I said, Come on now. I said, Y'all know y'all got to do something good for somebody. There's one person in this world you need to help. That's me. See which way I explained to him. I said, Look at here. I got, I got that. As that guy said, I got the unlimited, unlimited, man. He goes, He pulled it up. He said, no, man, you ain't got that. I said, no, man, I got that. I, I got the unlimited limited. So, uh, so any which way. It's never, it's never the same people working in there. You can go mm. every quarter, and it's going to be somebody different. Yeah. They must yeah, not pay these people was... anything. I mean. They got good benefits, though. I talked to a guy that works for Gamekeepers now yesterday. He worked for four years. He, but it's that it's that it just got a high turnover, and I don't know what that deal is, but it's a high turnover. But the guy's like, "Who'd you talk to?" I was like, "I don't know who I talked to," but it was April. It was March or April, turkey season. Anyway, so I said, "Well, so I got the unlimited." I said, "How much bill going up?" He said, five dollars." I said, "Man, I got a thousand dollar bill, and I could have just paid twenty five dollars between now and last April." And it, I said, I need some help. So they called. And he went back to the back room. It's like a car sale. Let me go back to here and talk to the. I mean, I ain't trying to buy a car, man. I need you to tell me if you can help me out with my bill, man. <laughs> I ain't trying to see if you can cut a cost off a of tire, man. Shoot. Anyway, he goes back in. <laughs> he, go back in. he goes back in. He comes back. He said, we're going to review it. He said, we don't want to lose you. Because I've been there for 13 years. And the reason I know that is because I, I didn't get a phone. Until my boy was born, he'll be 13 next month. And uh, so anyway, I said, man, I pay on time every other month. You know, I've been a customer. I never you know, I pay on time every other month. Yeah, <laughs> I 50%. I mean, that's, base, that's professional baseball players that ain't 50%. <laughs> <laughs> Shoot, I'm hitting 500, baby. So they said they called me. Well, they didn't, they didn't call me. So that was one day. Yeah, that was one day. So I go to the day now. I'm on day two. So tomorrow I get disconnected. 
well, shoot, if I get disconnected, that shut the y'all, y'all down, baby. So I went in there today. He said, I said, man, y'all, y'all, y'all help me out, man. What y'all going to do? He's like, let me go back here and talk to him again. I mean, I thought you talked to him yesterday, man. I mean, how many people got a $1,000 bill this month? I mean, how many people struggling like me today? You know, so anyway, he come back. He said, he reviewing it right now. He going to give you a call. But that was at 10 o'clock. I ain't got no call back. So I don't know if I'm going to have to pay it. What I was real nice because my buddy said that he used to work there. He said the best thing you do is go in and be nice, and, and they, they, they more have to want to help you. Oh yeah, I'm always nice. I mean, I don't mind paying it. I'm glad the Lord. I'm blessed enough to be able to pay that thousand fifty-seven dollar bill. I just don't want to pay it because I had went up there and thought I had got it changed. And whether it was that guy's fault or my fault, you know that's yet to be seen. But if I got to pay it. Cool, man, I just got where I could buy the thick baloney. Now I gotta go back to that thin slice stuff. I gotta pay this for you. <laughs> <laughs> I can buy the thick baloney and be able to fry it. Now I, now I gotta eat the cold cut. <laughs> I'm glad it's hot. Golly. <laughs> oh. uh, did could you tell? You know, all they gotta do is back, go back and backdate the bill. You know, and and they can fix it very easy. E- very easily. So if I can did, talk, yeah. Did you read him either way on kind of what they were going to do? Did he give you any kind of body language? No, like none whatsoever. I felt like I was dealing with a poker card player. And I was just like, you know, I'm like trying to put that smile on him. I'm like, I want to just go back into the back room anyway, just see if it was anybody back there. You know what I mean? Just like, just see if it was. You know how you go to like a car sales and you got to go to the room. Man, I went to buy a car one time and the man said, I'm going to go back and check the room. He went in there twice. A painter come out of there. I don't know who he's talking to. He must have been talking to him on the phone, but he wasn't talking to the painter. You know, <laughs> he was. I, I'm just oh. telling you, man. I couldn't be a car salesman. I'm glad that people make a lot of money selling cars, but I'm going to tell you something. Ooh, I never put down a car salesman because I need a car. I want a new car, new truck. But when the Lord gets you up there and talks about your sins, you know, lying is one of them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you went into a buy a truck and then I go buy the same truck, I bet we'll pay two, two different prices, and somebody's gonna say that's as low as I can go. You know, oh, that ain't yeah. as low as you can go. Uh, no, man. man, I got. Here, here's what by, here's what here's what bothers me about the car buying experience. When I pull up into a lot, man, I don't want people come running out of the building like like ants. Yeah. They ready. They I'm not tr- and I'm not trying to offend anybody that's a car salesman. Be aggressive. That That's a good thing. But, man, if I'm just kind of riding around the lot, looking at the – jumping out, looking at a sticker price, blah, 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 I, I don't need to be attacked like a fire ant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just – they got to make that money. They fight, and they fighting against one another in, inside that window. You know what I mean? They they trying to figure out who. But I can tell you, man, I just like to – I like to go to a car salesman and say, what you what bills you need to pay today? I got a thousand dollars in bills. Well, I tell you what, sell me this car for a thousand dollars over. You know, you ain't got to make all your bills off me. I got them too, baby. And I'm gonna be paying on it for the next five years, depending on the truck, probably seven years. <laughs> but you know, I don't I don't I don't get in there. I'm not a very good salesman. I can't even sell myself. So I did sell fifty hats this week, so I was proud of that, you know. Uh, <laughs> You had to give away fifty after all the people donated to the the, yeah, the Filipino that that yeah, act your act your page. Sell it, sell it. So now now I need to sell about a hundred hundred fifty more to pay this bill and <laughs> pay this pay the cell phone bill. I take up hey my PayPal <laughs> my PayPal number is uh, send, send cell phone money to y'all y'all to shut down seriously. <laughs> oh, it's over with. Eating. You, you know, you know the thing about I've 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 heard y'all though about about buying a car, and I believe it because of the last two purchases, car purchases, truck purchases that I've made. You got to be able to get up and walk away. You got to put the yeah. fear of God that you don't give a damn about their truck. You know what? There's nine other car lots with the same truck on it. That's right. That's right. And I'm the kind of person to show up and say, "Look, man, I got to have a truck. I want a truck." You just give me the deal. If I feel good about it, we're going to sell this song on a day. Don't come with me about time I can come off $250. No, man. No, man. You know, just you, know, you got a wheeling deal. I, and I hate it. You know, I wish Walmart, I wish I wish all the channel would start selling cars. 
you know, at least you know the price on the tag when you get in there, you know. But it it it, it, it does suck because when I bought my truck, I went to a place over Columbus, Mississippi, and they tried to sell me a 2011 for $31,000. I Jeez. left. Yeah, a 2011 Toyota truck for 31000 I left and went and got a 2015 for less than that with no miles. So, you know, and it made me so mad. Like, it made me mad. I wanted to just, I wanted to tell them about itself. But, you know. It just, it just, it just wasn't aggravating me. So I guess I'll just drive this old Toyota. It's got 200000 on it now. So I guess I'll just keep driving it to it fall off, give it to my boy and, uh, when time comes. But I did want a new Toyota just because I got 200,000 miles. But if I keep having these phone bills like this, I ain't going to be able to afford one. So that's, two, that's two and a half months rent in my trailer hood. I'm going to go put some grass and it's about dead now. <laughs> Uh, well, another thing that that I've always heard, I'll tell you a couple of things that I, before I, this is where kind of where I changed my strategy when it came to buying a vehicle a couple of times ago. Number one, I watched this YouTube video, but anyway, this guy said, "Listen, it's it's not you don't have to volunteer. Don't vo- don't volunteer information. Don't right. volunteer information as far as if you're trading or if you're just buying outright." You don't have to tell them that unless they're asking. Right. Number two, do not tell them that you are financing it with them. Don't ask about a monthly monthly payment. You're, you negotiate the price of the vehicle. Don't negotiate a monthly payment. That's Never right. negotiate a monthly payment. Number three, always go to a car uh, a car dealership that does a lot of volume. They're able to give you better prices very, very quickly. Right. <clears throat> but anyway, that that was a few factors. It just in in like I said, if you end up deciding to finance with one of theirs because they may offer something better than the bank, do it. But negotiate the price first, the That's total right. cost, not not some kind of monthly payment. That's anyway, right. and this worked. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, I don't have to negotiate about every four years, so oh. <laughs> I'm about every eight. Yeah, <laughs> well, it ain't my fault. My truck burned up in a pasture one time, so then I had to go get another one. So it's, only you. It is amazing at the only you situations that I talk to you about. No, only go you that could happen to. I went to go get a dog kennel out of a pasture and sat there and got on the phone and walked off. And, and I pace when I when I talk on the phone, I can literally. In 30 minutes, walk two miles, walking in circles. I done walked across this pasture. Next thing I know, I look back, you know, it was bright, it was dark time, and uh, next thing I know, the pasture was lit up. My truck was in the middle of it. So, <laughs> and I had about 4,000 rounds of ammunition in the toolbox of it. I mean, oh, I it man. Yeah, I had it on video. I was standing behind a tree. And, uh, anyway, I remember when they come, I remember when the insurance agent called, he said, Now, what happened? I said, man, all I know I was parked in here, and it set on fire. He said, why is the gas cap open? I said, I imagine when the tank, uh, gas uh, tank blew up, I would imagine. Blew up. It wasn't left, you know. But I said, I told him, and I remember telling him, because, you know, they ask you all these questions because of the insurance fraud and all that. And I told him, I said, look, man, that was an $8,000 truck. I had full insurance. If you don't want to pay, just say we ain't paying. I got to have a truck regardless if you pay me or don't pay me. He said, fair enough. He said, we'll let you know in a couple of days. I said, all right. He called me. He said, we're giving you $6,700 for your truck. Thank you, sir. And I moved on. And I felt bad. You know what I mean? I felt bad that my own truck burned. And I had to use, and I had to use insurance. You know what I mean? Every, every person that's listening to y'all, y'all talk, all of us know somebody that's an only you. We, we use that statement. When when they oh, yeah. tell the story, and Yalt Yalt is at the top of the po- totem pole when it comes to the only you. I have a cousin that's right up under you. He's an only yeah. you. Yeah, well, I told. That's why I tell everybody. I was like, "How you come up with these stories?" I said, "I've lived it. I just ain't told them all yet." <laughs> half of half of them I forget, and then one day I'm like, "Oh, I remember that. Let me let me get all the details of this and come up with a story, you know, or get it together." But you know, no, nah, something always pops up. That's what we were talking about, like social media the other day. I was telling you about nothing. Nothing has been going on, really, so I had not had a whole lot to talk about. 
But I can go live and say, hey, give me something to talk about. And you say peanut butter. And next thing you know, you know, I've been talking for an hour online, you know, just about peanut butter. Man, y'all, y'all, it's just, I hate that we missed last week. Man, I, I, I miss our daily, our weekly talks. I, yeah. I've really enjoyed those. Yeah. Um, you becoming a part of this show. It, it's it's well, been a great time. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I hope people keep listening. Because, like I said, they get to see a little bit different side. You know what I mean? Uh, they get they get to just listen, listen to the voice instead of the facial expressions. <laughs> oh, well, y'all, uh, we got to get to our Macaulay story now. But, man, I really, really have enjoyed it. And I want to thank you for taking part of your lunch break to get on here. <laughs> <laughs> and tell some, tell some of these only you stories because I'm telling you, man, you sit at the top of the po- totem pole when it comes to only you. Only you, right. that would happen too. Well, I sure appreciate it. And I hope there's no, as long as no harm is caused, I hope I keep having those only you moments and able to keep me going. Y'all have a good one. I appreciate it, Rocky. All right. Y'all, thank you again, man. We need to get to Ira now. All right, guys, like I told you on the front end of the podcast, Ira McCauley, the innovator, is back with Ramsey and I. Guys, how are y'all doing today? Doing good. Yeah, I'm doing wonderful, Rocky. Couldn't be better. So before we jump back into the story, Ramsey, I have to say that I was talking to somebody in Canada this morning and 34 degrees, and I asked him to, to box up some of that cold air and send it down here to me because and then and, and and then wouldn't you know it a fedex guy walked in with a box and it didn't seem like anything was in it and i said well this must be that cold air i requested from canada and he started <laughs> man it's really not uh it's really not it's, it's 55 degrees and lightly raining right now and uh cold weather i've seen has been 40 something you know and uh i've been wearing some pretty light clothes and um but, but you know, which like, like you know, I've been talking to some of these guys up here for that that other recording, and and uh, we think cold weather and cold fronts in terms of birds pushing. But so many of these species we're actually hunting right now are either local birds, the big Canadas and the mallards and pintails, or they're they're photo period migrators, and and they're they're starting they're they're, they're pushing. I mean, just just since I've been here in uh, the last week. There've been some pushes. It went from it went from in other words non-breeding adult speckled bellies to boom. Just the next day uh, after that full moon, bam. You know there's what the locals call chickens, uh, the young hatchier birds mixed in with these flocks, and uh, so the migration is underway. But but it's not terribly cold weather. It's just perfect weather as far as I'm concerned. I, y'all can have it. Y'all can have that too cold or too hot. I like it just right. Fifty five degrees, man. Right. You need to quit talking about it, Ramsey, because you're making me sick that I. Uh... Decided not to go to Canada this year for the first time, and I don't know how many daggum years. I sure do miss it. <laughs> yeah, well, sure you're do miss it. You're right, don't. <laughs> yeah, don't feel bad, but it is so cool to be up there and just see things change. Just in, let's say you're up there for ten days, man. You see so much change over ten days yeah. in Canada. It, it's so different than being down here, you know, and things being so front or food source or pressure or whatever related you know like you say this time of year man that moon is pushing things to happen and it happens quick yep yep it sure does and, and you know and, ju- and just in the last couple of weeks you know uh maybe not even that maybe in the last 10 days it, it, it's just it's just been you know i noticed this morning uh a lot of your adult drakes are, are, are notably more colored up i mean you know if you just pay attention um, shooting drakes is, is not a big deal. You know, it just, just it just takes a little bit of attention, you know, to, to to shoot a drake right now. They got enough color and contrast in their color scheme to to, to pick the drakes, and, uh, and that's that's just been in the last I'm gonna say ten or fourteen days. Uh, they're, they're they're changing. So man, it's just it's just I love to see it. I love to I love to see the uh, how it evolves. I just love to see the little pulses and little changes. Um, it, it just I don't know. It excites me. It's time. Yeah, the other. It's time. I mean, it's it's the end of September. Yep, it's time. Absolutely, it is. But anyway, 
I'm uh, I'm glad. I tell you, I, I sure thought a lot about last week's podcast where you are. I mean, uh, I even talked to my son Forrest, fixing to graduate college not too long. You know, I mean, and some of the stuff we talked about, he uh, I thought I think he I think he heard it and really kind of applied it to where he's going to be in another year or two. You know, good man. Yeah, that's good. I have to say, I have to say, Ira, last week there was a lot of life lessons. Uh, directly and indirectly told by your story. And if for those of you that have not heard that part, let me just say thank you guys for kind of taking over while I was out last week and getting that recorded. But like I said, there were so many life lessons of building a foundation after you got out of college to be successful. Because it takes a lot. People don't understand what the heck a veterinarian goes through to start a new business like like you did well you're figuring that out right now aren't you oh brother oh wow yeah we touched on it a little bit yesterday you and i did but yeah buddy that's uh that's a that's a big undertaking it really is i mean it's uh there's a lot of hair pulling that goes on during that point am i right or wrong oh man so I was talking to Ira Walker. I had a flat yesterday when we were supposed to be recording, Ramsey. And so I'm walking through Walmart talking to talking to Ira and very, very important <laughs> things that Ira's telling me. I mean, it, it's just this huge amounts of wisdom coming through the phone. And this guy walked by and his kid's just screaming. Ira said, what is that? I said, somebody can't get their kid quiet. And Wilson, knowing that I'm on the phone and can't stand any background noise while I'm on the phone, that's my youngest son, he walks and trails me. He said, hey, <laughs> my dad's on the phone. Y'all need to be quiet. Oh, my God. <laughs> Rocky's oh like, hey, boy. man, I got to go. I lost the kid somewhere. I started dying laughing. That's a terrible <laughs> feeling. I've had it happen to me several times. Well, that's what happened. He trailed those people in Walmart and told them to be quiet. My dad's on the phone. Bless his heart. Good boy. <laughs> Blue ribbon. Anyway. So, I know that 100% we didn't get done, or y'all did not get done with the um, starting that business, but along with, with growing that vet business, Mokmarsh starts coming in and you start working on that idea correct yes yeah so you know i graduated from vet school in 1995 and so my first three years were in a mixed animal practice where we talked about all the stuff we did there and um so during that period of time i was in a little bitty town higginsville missouri and uh mixed animal veterinarian by day and most of the night uh just a grassroots purist duck hunter by part of the day and part of the night. But, you know, I mean, I always kind of had a artistic um, brain that, that was looking for different things and wanting to do different things. And so, you know, I was carving some decoys and, and making silhouette decoys and, and a guy named Ben Gallup who worked at the University Extension Center, he and I started building some boats we you know we were doing some public hunting and hunting some other places too and uh mainly working but but doing a little bit of hunting and uh you know there were just some it was a lot of work you know this uh, most of our places are walk-in areas so i mean if you had a boat we didn't really have decoy sleds back then i mean nobody really knew what that was and they darn sure weren't commonplace and remember we're talking about a period of time when there still wasn't any internet, so it wasn't like you were going to get online and do any shopping or try to figure something out. I mean, you had to figure stuff out by looking in the yellow pages, calling up somebody that you thought might make something that you'd seen before and try to figure things out that way, which was very difficult, or getting yourself to the library and checking out some books, you know, or looking at a magazine, but there was not the wealth of information at your fingertips like there is today. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Things were way more difficult to get done. I mean, you know, so we went to the library. We checked out books on how to fiberglass. And uh, 
I mean, you know, we're just piecemealing stuff together and, and, you know, no idea what we're doing. Going to the hardware store, buying FRP panels, so fiberglass reinforced panels, and then taping those together and using Bondo. And, you know, that's how we were building our molds for these things. So they were crude. I mean, very crude. But even things like today, let's say you want to buy some fiberglass materials. You know, you want some woven roving and some polyester resin, and some gel coat sanding supplies, whatever. Well, heck, you just hop online, and in 30 seconds, you got a wealth of different places where you can buy it. Back then, I mean, it was it was hard to even find a place. You know, we ended up finding a place down by uh, Lake of the Ozarks where we could go and buy these fiberglass and supplies. So that was like a two-hour drive one way, and uh, and we learned everything by trial and error. Did it? You know, the first boats were just basically something should be thrown away. We didn't. We were doing things the wrong way and didn't know it. And uh, so it started off as a total, total hobby, basically at a necessity, just trying to get a product that would help to make our hunts easier, where we didn't have to pack everything out there. We could float. So in the beginning, we were making like basically pretty rough, kind of squared off fiberglass pyros, for lack of a better word, but definitely nothing like you know marsh boats that we really became known for a little while later you know these were just tools to get us and our gear from point a to point b but not really a hunting tool like they developed into you know uh just a little bit later and so uh that's kind of the before i started momar so this would have been in like the 95 96 90 early 97 period and um and you know starting around 97 is when I decided to take some of the Iowa marsh boat type ideas that were out there. So these are boats with names and designs like names like the Kara Hummer. Um, you know, there were some guys in Missouri and in Iowa that were building marsh boats out of wood, and they had plans for them that were really floating layout lines, essentially, more or less. I mean, you could use them also to get your decoys and yourself from point A to point B. Most guys use push poles. You could paddle. There were, I'm sure there were mud motors back then, but nobody in our world in Missouri really, really used them at all. You know, I know they were down in Louisiana and whatnot, but, uh, but anyway, that was kind of the transition from hero-style, utilitarian, uh, help get from point A to point B to an all-inclusive marsh boat, which is what we've made since the beginning of Momarsh. And that was really the foundation of Momarsh was a layout slash marsh-style hunting boat made out of fiberglass. Um, that's kind of the timeline and the transition that took place during those that period. And, you know, it was all just 100% a hobby then, whether it was... Uh, you know, carving decoys or making corrugated silhouettes or making duck boats or making whatever kind of little little blind or knickknack. Um, that's where it all kind of started, and that's kind of the time period when it started. Mm-hmm. You know, Ira, I'm I'm thinking about you and your buddies. You fresh out of vet school, just started working in the practice that you were in. You know, hunting public land. Outside of Momarsh, I just thought about this when you were telling the story. I was thinking about an Ira McCauley that walking into public land, just like every duck hunter in this world, um, set a goal. Man, I don't want to do this my whole life. I want to own my own property. I want to develop my own property. Outside of Momarsh, and, uh, you, you have become known as the one of the ultimate people to develop habitat for waterfowl. Was was that a goal back then? Were you thinking about that? Hey, man, I want to own a lot of property and develop that property for waterfowl back then. Was that a goal? Back then, I was, oh, absolutely. But it wasn't a lot of property. It was like, hey, I really want to prioritize. It's important to me that I have my own place at some point in time. So absolutely. I mean, it was on my radar screen 100%. Uh, I had great friends that had their places and they could come and go when they, when they pleased. And of course they were, I was fortunate enough that they always pretty much had a standing invite, but you know, when I'd have people come up, 
or I'd have people that I wanted to take or entertain. You know, you can't just impose on people and extend your invite for others. So, you know, we'd we'd end up beating around and going wherever and, and hunting however and wherever we could, whether it's Truman Lake or any of the different conservation areas or rivers, whether they were managed or unmanaged. But 100% at that point in time, having my own place was front and center on my radar screen and definitely something that I was dedicated to making happen for sure. Yeah. All right. So let's go back in. Let's go back then. Walk back in in your. So you'd have been twenty eight, twenty nine, somewhere in that time frame then. Uh, yeah. I think when I graduated, I was twenty five. So it would have been you know like twenty five to twenty eight. So yep. all right. You had a goal. You had something in mind that you wanted to work towards. To hit that goal, you had to. You had to do certain things. You had certain things had to work out. So what what were those things that you had in your mind? You had to do uh, as a young man thinking about it. How do I get this done in the future? What what, well, you what know, were you like in those shoes thinking about that? Oh, I mean, I was totally green. I had no idea what anything meant. You know, I mean, hey, I had no money, so that was you know before anything could happen, you had to quite you know build a little bit of wealth and i certainly wasn't on the fast track doing that i mean i wasn't piling up money with my first job that's for sure but i also had zero knowledge i mean i didn't know <laughs> the first thing about the loan process how, uh, bankers i mean i had no banking relationships i had no experience with with lending none of that stuff you know and so um it's kind of funny i think back and I'll just say this first. So, like, my hunting buddies, I was always kind of a duck nerd. I mean, I knew every daggum species and kind of what the quirks were, where they wanted to be, and, and all that stuff. You know, I mean, I was just into it. I paid attention to all that. Well, my buddies that I hunted with, as far as they were concerned, there were only three species of ducks. And so they knew what a mallard was. And then, you know, any small puddle duck was a teal. And then everything else was a scalp. So it didn't matter if it was a canvas back, a bluebill, a ringneck, a ruddy duck. That All that was all scalp. And then, then he had teal, which the only one they really knew was green teal drake. I mean, they knew what that was. And then he had mallards. So you got me on one total end of the spectrum. Then you got all my other redneck buddies who are my favorite people in the world. But, you know. It was either a mallard or a teal, or they didn't give a shit. That was basically the way that it went. So <laughs> we were hunting, you know, we were hunting this really cool 330-acre low spot uh, along the Missouri River, and uh, it, it was going to come up for sale. It was owned by a big corporate outfit, and this place called Mud Hole, man. I mean, just a friggin' cool, cool place, natural place. And it wasn't enrolled, you know, this was pre-WRP, any of that. So it was a hard place to, to farm, you know, it was always flooding and all that. And uh, it was coming up for sale. And the the seller wanted $800 an acre for this place. So I didn't have any money. I mean, like, no money. And uh, so... I, I reached out to some of my buddies. I was like, man, you know, we really ought to buy this place. $800 an acre, that is reasonable. That is a good deal. Um, and WRP was coming around right around that time. And so we're all like, well, we don't have any money. And so we, we go to a banker and we talk to the banker and he's like, okay, well, I mean, it's going to take 20% down and everybody's going to have to get me a PFS and, you know, we'll go through the loan process and all that stuff. And I'm like, I'm shaking my head and I have no idea what the guy's saying. So when he throws out PFS, I'm shaking my head like I know what he's talking about. And I have no earthly idea what that means. And I can't go to Google and find out, right? So I right. call my dad and I'm like, hey, man, I talked to this banker. I really think we ought to buy this piece of ground. My dad's like, dude, get a grip. I mean, you don't have any money. You, should, you need to be worrying about you know, buying stuff that's important, not some duck hunting property. And I'm like, well, okay, well, what's a, what's a PFS? And he's like, that's a personal financial personal statement. Financial. And I'm like, well, where do you get one of those? And he's like, you know, I mean, that's how green I was. I had no, I had no money and I had no clue about anything. Okay. 
and so that's kind of where we were and obviously we've come a long way since then but uh a, a friend of mine at the time ended up writing a check for the deal so he, he paid 800 bucks for this deal and things were really moving and shaking okay and then wrp came on like that the next year he enrolled it in wrp for 1200 bucks an acre did the development work on it and like two years later he sold it for one and a half million dollars so i mean it was a period of time where you could really really make some stuff happen if you had a little bit of money and if you had any damn sense at all which i had neither one so there you go mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's true oh. man that late that 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 late 90s early 2000s but i mean there was there were thousand dollar bills hanging on trees that were I just didn't have any money. I mean, I could see it going on, but it was, you know, there were some people that made some serious jack during that period of time. Yep. And there were some great, great duck hunting properties that were developed during that period of time. You know, there was a lot of money out there for conservation easements, and, uh, you know, some of that ground, just like that piece I was talking about, it was very difficult to farm, you know, the government's paying anyway, because you're losing your crop on it pretty much every year anyhow, um, you know, expanding that floodplain and just all the things that are associated with that whole NRCS uh, pot of money there, you know, it, it's going to it's going to help us all. I mean, you look at what's going on with floods and all that, I mean, I just see that continuing to be a trend that is just hard to get away from. That's right. All right. I, more right, more concrete that gets poured, the more important that gets. Mid-90s. The duck hunting in Mississippi was phenomenal. I quit college basketball to focus on duck hunting. That That's how <laughs> good it was at the time. I, and I, and yeah, I can't buddy. imagine what the duck hunting was like in Missouri during that time period. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, and I mean, I had a really good spot too. But man, I mean, it was it was unreal. You just basically any day it was like going to the Chinese buffet. You just say, well, what I want to what I want to shoot today. Have two wontons, three egg rolls, and a side of fried rice. I mean, you just decided what you want to shoot, and you just shot it. It wow, was it good. the same as 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 far as going and could you knock on doors during that time period? Say, hey, do you? You got ducks back there. You care if we go shoot them? That's how it was in Mississippi. Yeah, man. Uh, yes, yes. It is not that way now. But you could then, yes. And, you know, I was a veterinarian, too. And, and so, you know, I had a big vet box in the back of my truck. And, you know, most of the farmers, they were kind of intrigued when I'd roll up anyway. And, we, you know, we heck, I could speak their language. And so it was really easy for me to get on. Most things, unless they'd had a really bad experience or they were anti-hunting or whatever. But, yeah, man, by and large, if you could find the landowner and have a little conversation with them, generally they'd let you go. So from from the experience with the mud hole, you, you, you kind of saw what it was going to take in the future. So you really laid out some goals for yourself from that point, I'm sure. Some financial well, I goals. there. Yeah, man, I learned a lesson there and I started getting my ducks in a row so that we could actually make that a reality when when all the stars aligned, you know what I mean? But real quick before we get down that path, one other thing I want to bring up is another huge difference between then and now. You asked if I could knock on a door and get permission. The answer was yes. And I'm thinking of a huge swath through the Missouri bottoms. I could go and talk, knock, talk to the farmer and hunt pretty much anybody's land, but Biggest thing, or one of the biggest things that's changed all that since then is the, and we talked about it before, man, but it's true, is the the uh, development of spinning wing decoys. So, you know, back then you were talking about being an opportunist where water presented itself, right? So this farmer might have a wet swag and a wet year. He might get two people come ask him to go duck hunt or whatever. Sure, man, have at him. But once spinning wing decoys were developed and all these ducks were going and now you could effectively hunt them with spinning wing decoys and layout blinds anywhere in that whole bottom and these guys were having people knock on their doors every day and there was a lot more access and a lot more people getting stuck and rutting up people's fields and more competition and all that that is that really ixnade getting permission because a there were 10 million people doing it now and b 
these part, you know, with the increase in the frequency of hunting, there came the increase in the frequency of bad experiences. And now you ain't going to go yep. knock on someone's door and get permission. So spinning wing wow. decoys had an impact on getting permission a hundred thousand percent. Wow. Never, never heard that one before. That's, that's very interesting. Oh yeah, man, for sure. For sure. I feel like it's coming a little bit full circle. You know, those ducks, they're, they're just not near as easy to kill as they used to be, um, field hunting. But, uh, yeah, that getting permission down that bottoms nowadays, it, it ain't happening. Did it, did it ever come a point in the beginnings of Mo Marsh where you're having to put cash in it? You're having to put some cash in it to get the company started that it interfered with the goals of owning property later on? Did you ever, did that ever cross your mind? No, not, not really, because in the beginning, somehow I ended up some daggum uh, accounting seminar, and this deal was talking about the benefits of a home-based business from a tax standpoint. So, you know, you can write off all your miles. You can write off this. You can do this and that and the other. So in the beginning, I mean, Momars was, as much a hobby slash tax vehicle as it was a, hey, let's make some serious money. So I was never really worried about having to inject a bunch of personal cash in there to try to thrust the business forward to where it was making more money or any of that stuff, you know. It was truly a business that was built out of passion that I was using as a tax vehicle and, uh, and just something that I can enjoy myself with. You know, the, the focus of Momars for a long time was not to make money. It was uh, it was those two things. So, yeah, no, it never it never affected that. The thing that affected that the most was just, you know, when you have no money and you're starting from zero and you're not making a ton and you're paying your taxes, you know, trying to come up with that initial 20 or $30,000 of just, pure after-tax cash, dude, that's a tough thing to do back in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. Oh, it was. It was. So, I mean, I was but scratching and fighting and working my butt off just, you know, saving it, I mean, you know, $20 at a time. Let's talk time. Let's talk about that for a minute. Ramsey's favorite saying is a lot of times uh, – Ramsey always spelled out T I M E. T I M E. So, how did you, in the beginning, when you're developing and starting something as new as Mo Marsh, you you got a new vet business? You're married, right? No, no. So we're still, you know, when I started Mo Marsh, let's let's look at the timeline again, real quick. So, started Mo Marsh in 1998. So that was the first year that I started my own. I started Ira McCauley DBMPC in 1998 as well. So really what okay. that was, was it was a shell for my relief business. So in 98, I quit my mixed animal job. I went to work at the emergency clinic in Kansas City at night. And then during the day, I did re relief work for like, let's say, 20 different practices in Kansas City. So all the relief work fell underneath that Ira D. McCauley DVM PC show. And uh, I moved back to St. Louis in 2000. Now, just okay. to, I'm going to hop ahead just a little bit here for a timeline standpoint. We bought Locust Grove in 2005, which is our personal hunting place. And in 2009, we officially incorporated Habitat Flat. So... You know, we're still talking a nine-year gap between right. starting okay. Mo Marsh. Uh, got married in 2001, bought our farm in 2005, and and my wife. Of course, we're not there yet, but she she helped out on that front too. And then uh, Habitat Flats in 2009. Okay, well let's do this. All right, you're doing emergency work at night. You're, you're yep. working in an emergency clinic, doing relief work during the day. Where in the hell do you get time to develop products for Momarsh? 
Man, I didn't drink much back then, and I didn't sleep much either. Um, I had all kinds of damn time, and I didn't have any kids. So between no kids, not drinking, um, I had all kinds of daggum time and not sleeping. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I just uh, – and, and I wasn't doing a whole ton of product development back then. I mean, you know, I was – I was, you know, when I wasn't on – you know – when I wasn't working, I was out piddling around in the garage, making decoys or boats or whatever, you know. And uh, mm-hmm. and then when hunting season rolled around, it was over, buddy. I mean, I did no relief work once hunting season rolled around. You know, my techs, we'd work through the night, and I'd catch a little sleep if I could. And then, you know, hell, I'd, I'd be off for four days. So I did a lot of hunting during that period of time, a whole lot. Well, and I mean, it was the primo years. I mean, we're talking ninety eight, oh, ninety nine, two thousand. It, so, it was unreal. It was rock solid. Yeah. You know, Ramsey brought a little up, sleepover. Yeah. Go ahead. Ramsey brought up a very, very interesting topic, and I don't know if we should start on it today or wait till next week. Uh, Pre podcast, he was talking about it. That you know, around this same time. The conservation order came in, and you know you you were kind of a leader on that forefront of of killing geese of snow geese. You really jumped into that. I was dang sure in a good area for it and uh and I was dang sure going after them hard um you know we touched on it some last week, but you know I was mainly hunting over homemade corrugated silhouette you know plastic corrugated silhouette. And, uh, so, you know, we were kind of going through the timeline earlier. Um, yeah, that would have been in the, in the late nineties because I was still in Higginsville. And, uh, so you're right, Ramsey, it had to been 98, 99. No, it was 98. I, I, I was, I was working for U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. I only worked there yeah. three years and, and, and I had been called it, it, 98 or 99, but I think it was 98. I can you're Google right, that. I think it was 98. But but the Fed, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, National Office made about eight stops around the U.S. and recruited uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service refuge personnel to brainstorm what the heck they were going to do for to control the snow geese. They couldn't go egg the colonies because they're too remote. The, the the landscape was too vast. They you know they they said it would cost a million dollars per colony to go and try something like that. They didn't have the budget and. Uh, and so they were literally they just whiteboard spitballing. They done it for two and a half years, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And uh, hit two colonies anyway. But but they uh, but what they did is is, is uh, they were they were fishing for ideas, you know, on what what hunting's the only way we can try to do it. Here's what we're going to do. You know, people don't like these snow geese. People don't like to hunt them. It's very it's very uh, they're very difficult to hunt. Uh, it, it, it's a very uh, heavy equipment load. You know, you got you got to buy a lot of equipment how are we going to make this mainstream and and uh whether 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 you led the charge or you were like forrest gump just there you know i remember I mean, in fact it's so it's so uh i had left fish and wildlife service gone to work for usda in the early 2000s which all these years later seems about the same you know uh but when, when i actually opened up a ducks unlimited magazine one day there were you and you and three of your best buddies, your brother and and, and Tony and and uh, the other fella and 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 y'all had I mean y'all they they had given y'all a heck of a story uh, about this and and I just looking back I recognize that story y'all's relationship uh, and taking those decoys which, which were which were innovative in and of themselves they they were game changers. And they, they and what they while well, the decoy that come behind them stem from those decoys and what y'all did that spring just in my mind put snow goose hunting uh, as we know it now in a, on a whole new playing field, you know. And and I you know uh, it, it was incredible. I, I I remember where I was sitting, and and from that moment on, back in old chat room days, snow goose hunting became a big big deal, a real yeah, big deal. For sure, man. So, I mean, I remember, and you guys probably remember this too, but I remember, like, I finding a snow goose feed. This was before I'd made all my corrugated silhouettes and going to Walmart and buying, like, three boxes of trash bags and laying on my back in the dirt with no blind or anything and, 
I, I can't remember. I, I want to say back then the limit was five. Maybe it was ten. I, I can't remember, but it wasn't yeah. very many. And uh, five. And this is in the fall, and shooting them that way. And you think about that and having some degree of success versus the things that are required now. It's totally different ball wax, and um, yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of things that have changed technology-wise along the way too. I mean, the period of time you're referring to, you know, that was we were coming out with some of our first uh, Habitat Flash DVDs, and really, you know, opening people's eyes. I feel like to mm-hmm. uh, to just you know how cool and how much fun snow goose hunting could be when most people were referring to them as flying rats and maggots of the sky and all that stuff. And we're we're saying, hey, man, these are the tarpon of waterfowl. I mean, these things are at the top of the food chain. And there's a reason that we have a problem with overpopulation. It's because they're really smart. You know, the days of just taking trash bags and going out and killing them, you know, the development. And I don't take any uh, credibility for what, you know, the great job that, that Avery did with coming out with the full-body snow goose decoys and then, you know, Tony and Tyson's ambition to want to have these huge, which we all hunted together and all that, but they were really the ones that were kind of the main guys that, yep. were, that were doing that and had the vision for that back then. But, you know, putting out huge, ultra-realistic decoy spreads on the X with birds that had never seen anything like that before, and you want to mm-hmm. talk about a lot of fun, man, we just had a blast, you know, and 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 none of, and at that point in time, we were all pretty footloose and fancy free too, you know. Um, I mean, we had some obligations, but man, when hunting season came around, we pretty well just shook all them like water off a duck's back, and we were going killing. Talking so, about that event, when y'all when y'all took a massive spread of ultra realistic full body decoys, y'all didn't just hunt right there in your backyard. That was like a trek. What what was that event like? I I really don't remember the details of it. Well, I mean, we were we were young and we were mobile <clears throat> and we were hardcore. So, I mean, we were there was never any grass or daylight underneath our feet. And uh, you know, there's a big difference between being one group of people that are all like-minded, type A personalities that are super driven and have a common goal, versus running, you know, a large commercial operation or whatever. So. We were nimble, right? I mean, all it took was a quick conversation. Everybody was on the same page, and bam, you were you were ready for the next day. And uh, so, you know, when you're like that, I mean, every hunt can be the hunt of a lifetime because you just have all your ducks in a row. You know, you're like a well-oiled machine. You got guys that are looking. Uh, you're you know the people. It's easy to get permission. You're you're hunting the X ninety percent of the time, and there's nobody else really doing it. You know, so it was the uh, it was kind of like taking candy from a baby considered or uh, compared to the way that it is now. You know, it's way more competitive. The bird's gotten incrementally smarter, so much so that, I mean, you get a year like last year when there's zero juvies. Dude, I mean, it's it's very, very difficult. You're, you're just, they're extremely hard to kill unless you have all the stars line up, you know, versus back then, they still hadn't even the adults hadn't seen anything like that. You know what I mean? But what did y'all, y'all didn't just hunt Missouri, did you? Y'all chased them up the flyway some, didn't you? Well, some, I didn't do as much of that. You know, Tony and Fuji and those guys would do more of that. Yeah. I was from, was from South Dakota, but, you know, I pretty well stayed here. I had too much other stuff going on to, to chase them all over. But those guys did the majority of it here in Missouri. I say those guys, we did. And then they'd hunt some up, uh, you know, in Iowa. They helped guide for Jim Hawk, and then they'd go up to South Dakota. But, you know, the the level of success across the across the deal was way higher then. And, and I don't know, you know, back then, I don't think we had our finger on the pulse as well of, you know, what's the percentage of juvies in this year class of birds and all that stuff, you know. So I can't really... I do remember that there were lots of juvies in the piles of geese that we were shooting. So, you know, it may have been a combination of a bunch of things that were right, but all I know is the hunting was dang sure good. And, and you know, I, I so I look at last year, and I think about this conversation and all that, and you just always have to have, if you're a waterfowler, 
you always have to have both eyes wide open and have an open mind, right? So you know how we found success last year? And when I say we, I'm talking about me and Joe Weimer, my, my good friend. It's my social media guy. And anyway, we do a lot of stuff together. So nobody's killing shit, right? I mean, it's very, very difficult, very difficult. And so the way that we found success last year, I said, Joe, let's think about this this way. When when the duck hunting gets tough, and these ducks have been living here on us for two months, what do we do? We go to the only motions of jerk string, something that I can control that's minimal. We go to fully flocked decoys. There's no spinners. We go to where they're living, and we call sparingly. And we hide good because the last thing we want to do is scare them, right? All we need to do is go there and not scare them, right? Whereas most people are still doing the same old things they've done and, and they just can't kill yep. them. And so I said, what if we did the same thing for snow geese? And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're going to a feed. You know they were there yesterday. There were tons of them. What's your goal? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, I just want you to think about it like our late season duck hunts. Go there and don't scare them. And he's like, man, I've never thought about anything like that. I'm like, just, I was working. I said, tomorrow I want you to go there because we talk about all kinds of crazy stuff. And I said, I want you to go there and I want you to put out like 15 full body decoys and hide good and see how it goes. And I mean, I'm talking about all our spreads, which we have like seven of them. They're averaging like, Five birds a day, ten birds a day, whatever. Guess how many shot the next day over fifteen decoys by himself? Mm. Forty-two. Forty-two. Oh, wow! So you always uh-huh. have to have an open mind and both eyes open, and don't think you know everything. Pay attention to what's going on, Absolutely. and think about it. And sometimes that's how you'll find your success is by going the opposite of the way that things things are. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly right. Wow. That is exactly that's right. A, and he and that's I a had great. good hunts last year over, seriously, man, I mean, like, we could fit all our decoys into the bed of the ranger, like less than 30 decoys. <laughs> well, that is a great stopping point for today. Ira Ramsey, I enjoyed it. We're going to jump back more into the Momar story next week because uh, there's a lot there. There's a lot of, I'm sure there was a lot of difficulties to grow that business into the success that it was. We'll jump more into that story next week. Ira Ramsey, thank you again. We want to thank all of you that listened to this edition of the End of the Line podcast, Power. Duck, 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 duck.